I'm Emily Primo, assistant editor of Fraud Magazine, and in this edition of the ACFE's monthly podcast, Fraud Talk, we are joined by Jerry Zack. Jerry is the former chair of the ACFE's Board of Regents and is a managing director in the global forensics practice of BDO Consulting. Today, we're talking about a case that seems simple on the surface, but proved to be much more complex than originally thought. Thank you for joining us, Jerry. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about a case that's featured in the March-April issue of Fraud Magazine. Can you start by telling us a little bit about that case and how you were brought in? It's a very interesting case. Uh, I was initially contacted by a member of their board of directors, uh, a member of the audit committee in particular, um, in connection with some concerns that they had. They actually had two two types of concerns. The main one dealing with uh, an embezzlement that had taken place literally 10 years earlier. But uh, the reason it had resurfaced at this time was it had been covered up at the time 10 years earlier. It was dealing with a family member who had taken some money from the organization and uh, the family member's uh, relative was the chief executive officer of the organization, and he basically covered the whole thing up uh, along with uh, getting her to promise to simply repay the funds. So that was really what started this whole lengthy and twisting investigation was uh, a call from the audit committee in connection with uh, this this earlier fraud being resurfaced. And how did it resurface? That's a pretty long cover-up. It's a very long cover-up. He managed to keep it quiet all those years, but it was actually one or two of the employees within this organization uh, eventually kind of did some of their own digging and became very, very suspicious. Uh, It's interesting because every once in a while you run across someone who I guess, for lack of a better word, qualifies as a conspiracy theorist. Well, they definitely had one of those at this organization. And and this gentleman had basically begun putting two and two together. He was not a big fan of either of these two people, I think. And I think uh, part of the bringing me in, I think the audit committee was a bit on the fence in terms of how to take this person because on one hand, he came across as someone who simply may have had it in for the two uh, family members. But on the other hand, he was bringing up some very, very serious allegations. Uh, And then eventually the chief executive officer did admit that indeed there was this embezzlement that the COO, uh, his relative had committed He apologized for keeping it quiet, but he assured them that everything had been taken care of uh, and that the good things that the COO had done far outweighed this this theft of funds, and he assured them that nothing inappropriate happened thereafter. When you were brought in, had she repaid the money and had she passed her duties off at that point? That was one of the first things that we <clears throat> that we looked into was the repayment and how did they account for this? <clears throat> and we immediately be- became rather suspicious because the amount that had been taken, you would think would show up then if she had promised to repay it, you would think it would show up in the financial records as some sort of a receivable uh, from her. Uh, Yet it never really did. It ended up bouncing around in a couple different places of their financial statements, primarily sitting in an unusual kind of a prepaid expense account, uh, even though nothing had been prepaid to anybody. But I think part of it was then removed 
in the form of basically as a prepaid expense, you would normally think that then there's an expense that follows. So they basically wrote down parts of this prepaid expense by writing it off to various different categories of expenses over time, when in fact there weren't any real repayments. Let's take that back. There were a couple of very nominal payments early on, uh, but very, very immaterial. Uh, they basically hid it in the financial statements. We were always a little curious as to whether the auditor was in on it or simply did a bad job. That part of the investigation never got really pursued. Our focus was mainly just on the internal aspect of it. Uh, but they did, I just thought I'd throw that in because they did get an audit and they managed to get clean opinions on their audit. When you came on, you already knew that all of this had already happened, correct? Yes. Well, we knew that the funds had been embezzled. Uh, okay. That was pretty much all that we knew. Even, even the board did not know about how the embezzled funds had been accounted for. And, of course, they were also concerned with that second part of the promise, that she would stay out of the financial uh, management, the financial affairs of the organization. So that then became an even bigger part uh, of our investigation, looking into that. And and she did distance herself from some of the day-to-day things that she previously had been involved in, you know, signing of checks and, and things of that nature. She brought a controller in, which we'll get to shortly because that was a whole other story that, that then came out of this. You know, but she did remove herself from what you would call the routine parts of her job that she previously had. But what she didn't do was remove herself from some of the very important financial decisions uh, that were made with respect to uh, a few areas. Two that really jumped out at us um, were her involvement in some donor-restricted and government grant funds associated with a program that they were uh, involved in. And the second one, the one that was even more interesting, was the organization acquired some real estate that was on its books, but when we dug a little further into this, it was very, very suspicious, and this, this the COO's fingerprints were all over this one. It was basically real estate had been a purchased using the organization's funds, yet it wasn't even titled in the organization's name. It was somehow titled in an affiliated for-profit business's name. Um, This entity, by the way, is a not-for-profit organization that that we were investigating, but they had a couple of for-profit affiliate uh, businesses that the real estate was actually titled in with some rather vague conditions as to who even owned these affiliates. There was clearly something going on there as well uh, in terms of moving moving the funds around to acquire the buildings that it wasn't even accounted for properly, um, and then putting the building in the title of a for-profit business that Uh, Our hunch was that the COO and perhaps even the CEO had a personal interest in. As you were investigating the initial allegations, you found that they were embezzling even more through these two methods? It appeared so. It appeared so. At a minimum, it was a misuse of organizations' funds. This is the part of the investigation that... um, Because of, for for reasons we'll get into a little bit later, um, could never be completely finished. Um, The the organization kind of collapsed towards the end of all of this, and that part of the investigation never really uh, was seen through all the way prior to kind of the end of the organization. But um, yes, the, the suspicion was that at a minimum, there was some sort of personal benefit associated with 
some real estate acquisitions, even though some of the real estate was purportedly used for the organization's programs, the fact that it wasn't titled in the organization's name and ownership uh, documents were scarce, uh, difficult to come by for these these, uh, uh, businesses that it was titled in. Our suspicion was that there was at a minimum uh, some personal benefit associated with some real estate transactions. You mentioned, again, in the in the Fraud Magazine article that there was some sort of collusion that you found between an employee from the Human Resources Department and the controller. Yes, and this is where the, the investigation took a real surprising turn. Um, as I mentioned, the initially we were brought in to, in essence, investigate the COO and, and a little bit of the CEO to see whether there had been additional uh, frauds there. Again, kind of getting back to the core embezzlement from 10 years earlier was primarily done through expense reimbursements and misuse of the corporate credit card. So we had extracted a lot of data regarding credit card use um, for a significant number of years uh, after the initial embezzlement all the way up to the current period of time that we were uh, when the investigation was being done. But along the way, there was a second allegation that they wanted us to look into, and that was because of this controller being brought in, handpicked by the COO after she was removing herself from the day-to-day affairs, um, they were also suspicious that perhaps the controller had been cheating on his expense report, kind of learning from the master, the COO, in a way. But anyway, so we wanted to look both at the COO's expense reports and the controller's expense reports. So we pulled all the data associated with their uh, expense reports for the whole organization, and we noticed an anomaly. Uh, And what the anomaly was, was in the user identification field of the person who was, in essence, inputting and processing the expense reports. In in every other employee's case, there was one of two accounts payable clerks who would be involved in processing processing expense reports, except for the controller. The controller, his expense report was always processed by a unique user ID. And we looked into who that user was, and it was someone in the human resources department who didn't have any other responsibilities associated with processing expense reports. So that initially made us you know, raise our eyebrow a little bit, but obviously we weren't going to conclude fraud right away. But we began pulling all those expense reports, and sure enough, there was very clearly signs that uh, the controller was cheating on his expense report. There was no doubt about that. But we were still con- kind of concerned about this involvement by someone in the human resources department. So we began looking a little further at then other things that she did, uh, the human resources person. Um, and without bogging our discussion too far down in in the details. Ultimately, what this led to was we discovered that the collusion was between the controller and the HR person, and it was much, much worse than simply helping this person cheat on their expense reports. The human resources person had doubled up on the paychecks being paid to the controller as well. And that was actually a much, much bigger fraud. The the expense reporting fraud was, you know, less than $40,000 in total. Uh, but the, the extra payments in payroll was much, much more than that. It wasn't really a ghost employee. She basically managed to double up his pay. It was very interesting. This was a, an interesting twist that very much surprised the board when we presented our results uh, in this area because they were anticipating us telling them, yeah, they was, he's cheating on his expense report. Um, but we were, we ended up needing to tell them that not only was he cheating on his expense report, that he was 
involved with this human resources director in a collusive scheme whereby they were taking much, much more than that uh, in a payroll-related scheme. And digging a little further, looking at the expense reports and interviewing some people, it became quite apparent that the two were involved in an inappropriate relationship personally as well. Were you guys able to figure out how long this fraud was going on, them doubling up the payroll? Yes, this one was much easier to kind of get our arms around because we had all the data electronically and you could very clearly see where it began uh, and where it where it ended. That one was a certainly an easier one to uh, to address, but it surprised everyone. Uh, and again, I think one of the lessons you know that comes out of a, a case that this part of a case like this is. We could have taken the easy approach of saying, let's just go pull his expense reports and confirm whether or not he's been cheating on his expense reports. That would have been the easy way that could have confirmed the board's suspicions. But what we did was we kind of took a step back and said, we need to be able to show how he did this as well. And let, let's you know assess the risks associated with the entire thing that he's involved in. And that's what then led us to you know pulling all this data and discovering this unusual bit of information in the data that, that implicated the HR person. It, it really was quite a surprise for everyone when, when that came up. That was an, an unanticipated uh, twist to this case. Why do you think it went unnoticed? Well, again, even though this was a decent-sized organization, they weren't perfect in terms of their internal controls, without a doubt. All right, so there, were, there was some lack of separation of duties in a few areas. The controller had a significant amount of authority inherited from the COO as the COO delegated a lot of this stuff to the, to the controller. The controller was able to hide uh, several of these things. He just didn't have all the right access to commit the fraud himself. And that's where um, the separation of duties can break down in any organization when you end up with collusion, of course. So they had a combination, it was kind of a perfect storm. On one hand, there was a lack of separation of duties in a few key areas, but even where they did have a separation of duties, like in this area, um, when you've got collusion, you, know, you can get around the separation of duties. In other words, there was no way he could have arranged to get himself paid twice as much as what he was supposed to. He needed her involvement to be able to do that. That's impressive. The CEO, the CEO, the controller, and the human resources employee, all committing fraud within the same organization. <laughs> yes, yes. And in looking back on it, part of the, in my opinion, and this is never really could be validated, but you know, part of the controller's rationalization for all this is that he became, he was very clearly aware. He was in on the fact that the COO had previously embezzled funds and the CEO had covered it up. I'm not sure how he ever came about that knowledge, whether the COO and CEO shared that with him or what, but he was very clearly aware of that. And I think he used that knowledge in part to, to rationalize that, well, you know, look, she took more than half a million dollars. So what's the big deal if I take a couple hundred thousand dollars along the way? You know, almost as though he knew he already had some dirt, if you will, on the CEO and the COO. I don't know if he ever planned on using that against him. It is this whole thing came to light before then. But um, that was very likely that was part of his rationalization. But, yeah, you had this whole corrupt environment at the top of the organization. And it just goes to show that when the tone at the top is broken, it's going to trickle down. 
Absolutely it does. Just for the fraud examiners out there, what are some best practices or how did you approach this investigation? Because you obviously went in looking for one thing and uncovered so much more. So what would you tell fellow fraud examiners to do when they're approaching an investigation? Well, for starters, recognizing that an allegation is merely that, an allegation. You know, part of the board of directors' suspicions turned out to be justified. Parts of it we ended up clearing. Okay, I noticed we we did see that the COO never did embezzle any further funds in the form of misuse of the corporate credit card, expense reimbursements. She did remove herself, and they were suspicious that none of that had happened. So even if you have what looks like a very, very valid allegation, now the job of the fraud examiner is not to prove an allegation or disprove an allegation. It's to just find out the facts and keep an open mind the whole way. It's very easy to become kind of biased or fall in love with a theory or an allegation because it, it appears to be correct. I think right out of the gate, that was, that was part of this. And, and then the second part really deals with being open to the different twists and turns that the investigation might take, because this one obviously took some very interesting twists and turns along the way. And you have to be prepared for sudden and potentially drastic shifts in the scope of an investigation and keep the people informed that you're working with. Obviously, you know, we had to have a lot of ongoing communication with the audit committee as we would find some of these things to say, oh, we're going to need to dig a little bit in this area or dig a little bit in that area um, to, to go look into these things a little bit further. Keeping an open dialogue uh, with, in this case, the audit committee was a critical part about this. And then I think probably the last lesson I've kind of already alluded to it, and that is even if you know or feel very strongly that the fraud did take place, you still have to complete the investigation by studying exactly how they perpetrated the fraud. Uh, And that's where that expense reimbursement aspect of the case really showed that, Um, you know, we could have simply looked at his expense reports and and said, yep, that's not a valid expense. Instead, we took the proper approach of backing up, figuring out the process. What is the process that this organization routinely does go through? And where did that process break down uh, to enable this person to, to engage in this fraud? So had we not done that, we would have never found that payroll fraud. How did things turn out for the CEO, the COO, the controller, and the human resources employee? Were they indicted, fired? What happened? Well, a, a little bit of, of everything except for the indictment part. Um, the CEO did resign. I think he saw the writing on the wall. I think he was probably going to be terminated, but he, he, he stepped down. The COO was terminated. The uh, controller left kind of a mutual agreement with the organization to leave, but they didn't prosecute any of these individuals. Now, granted, as I, as I alluded to, the organization shortly after our investigation did go through a rather significant upheaval, reorganization, re-emerging on, you know, with a whole new name, a whole new corporation, et cetera. So, you know, the old entity basically went away. Well, after the CEO and the COO stepped down, resigned, or were terminated. Was there any transparency about what had occurred with the rest of the organization? Very little, unfortunately. And and again, part of the reason was this 
this rapid disintegration of the organization. At, at this point, there were even other, there were government investigators uh, involved because of the misuse of the government funds. So this organization was crumbling pretty quickly. They could certainly still have done a much, much better job of being more transparent internally. But, you know, when the CEO and the CEO and the controller all are gone within a very, very short period of time, it really should have been up to the board of directors, you know, and the chair of the board to kind of step in and you know, be more transparent with the staff. And they didn't really do that. I think they, and that's common in some of these cases, they were so caught up in their own anger uh, at what had happened, that they they forgot that there's this whole big organization of employees there still that, that need to hear something. Um, and as a result, to no great surprise, uh, you know, a lot of these employees just left on their own very quickly. And again, all part of the rapid disintegration of this organization, which is very unfortunate. Well, thank you so much for sitting and talking with us, Jerry. Oh, sure thing. Thanks for listening. To learn more from Jerry, be sure to catch him at the 27th annual ACFE Global Fraud Conference in Las Vegas, June 12th through the 17th. Register today at fraudconference.com. To hear all of our podcasts, visit acfe.com podcast. Fraud Talk is also available in the iTunes store. This is Emily Primo signing off.